G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. Welcome to Leading the Way, featuring the solid Bible teaching of Dr. Michael Yusuf, popular pastor and author of the new book, Hope for This Present Crisis. Today, Dr. Yusuf guides you into the second chapter of Titus as he continues his practical series, Pursuing Godliness in a Godless World. You'll be encouraged to stand firm on the foundation of biblical truth, even when the culture and world around you is walking, even running away. Right now, let's listen together as Dr. Michael Yusuf begins. Let me begin by... uh sharing a little bit of a historic fact about the monastic movement. You know what I mean by monastic movement, where the monasteries are, where the monks and the nuns go to? Many people think that this has began with the first century of Christianity. It's not. It's actually started in the 300s. And believe it or not, it started in Egypt, not in Rome. <laughs> and it started by a very wealthy man, Antony, or Antonio, was referred to, who gave all his wealth away, literally to the poor. He sold everything, gave it to the poor, and decided that in order to pursue godliness or holiness, he's going to go out in the desert, and he's going to be alone with God. After 12 years out in the desert, the word got out, and his fame was spread, and people flocked to him for wise counsel, for advice, for spiritual guidance and wisdom which defeated the purpose for which he wanted to be away in the desert alone with God. And so, after 13 years in the desert, he wanted to get away from people, so he went to a, an abandoned tomb. Well, a few years later, they found him. They kept searching for him. They found him in the abandoned tomb. So he decided to go and live in a, an old Roman fortress and in fact, still there to this day, but they found him there too. <laughs> so after 20 years of this, he finally built a monastery. The monastery of St. Andrew is still there in, in Egypt, in an oasis in the desert, in the 300s. No matter where he went, people followed him. I'm going to tell you more about him at the end of the message. He couldn't get away from people. He couldn't get away from crowd. And I thought, what an incredible object lesson to every one of us who are in pursuit of godliness, that we cannot pursue godliness away from people. We cannot live out our faith in isolation. We cannot pursue godliness if we are not in a godless world. We cannot grow into Christ-likeness in a vacuum. Godliness cannot really bear fruit, and that fruit become clear and obvious if we're not rubbing shoulders with people. Today, as we continue the study in Paul's epistle to Titus, we look at the first half of chapter 2. There you're going to learn 
that God wants us to pursue godliness in relationships. Relationships both with the believers and with the non-believers outside of the church. Relationships with those who are near and those who are far. And that is why the first ten verses of chapter 2 of Titus, Paul covers the whole waterfront. I mean, he leaves no one out. Old men, old women, young men, young women, employers, employees, leaves no one out. So, turn to Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. In verse 1, the very first thing Paul is saying to Titus is this, that healthy doctrine produces healthy spiritual living, that sound biblical teaching produces sound practices, that teaching the truth of God and of His Word will produce Christians who are in pursuit of godliness. That's really the bottom line here. And then in verses 2 to 10, Paul gives Titus a number of injunctions. Please listen carefully. Perhaps there is no time that we find these injunctions to be more unpopular than our time. I want to repeat this. Perhaps there is no time when we find these injunctions by the word and in the Word of God to be more unpopular than in our time. Let's look at them together. First, he speaks to the old men. He said they are to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, love, and endurance. In an age in which so many old men want to look young and hip, these are sobering words. In fact, when I hear some of my friends would say, <laughs> oh, to be 20 again, I said, give me a break. <laughs> I don't want to be in my 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s again. <laughs> I enjoyed every one of those ages, and I'm glad I'm where I am, and I'm, I'm looking forward to the future, not worried about being, want to be young again, because those of us who have walked with the Lord long time should rejoice in that privilege. The person that Paul has in mind is the kind of person who has God's perspective, uh, the person who does not panic, the person who does not overreact, the person who doesn't go into extremes. Even when he is under stress, even when he is under pressure, he is stable and he's dependable. Why? Because he had been feeding for all these years upon the, the Word of God and the power of the Word of God and the wealth of the Word of God, because he has been drinking deeply from the springs and the wealth of God's grace, he rejoices in his obedience to the Word of God. Not say, oh, that I would be young again. At the age of 83, having traveled 250,000 miles on horseback, <laughs> not on airplanes, on horseback, preached 40,000 sermons, wrote 200 books and booklets. At the age of 83, John Wesley regretted that he has been unable to read and write more than 15 hours a day without his eyes getting tired. At his 86th birthday, he made a big confession of a big sin. 
that he now increasingly developing this tendency to sleep in till 5.30 in the morning. (laughs) Beloved, godly older saints bring stability and wisdom that should be cherished. Hear me right, please. One of the saddest things is a man who was on fire for God in his youth, but then his love for the Lord has grown cold when he got older. It's the saddest thing for me. Because in the pursuit of godliness, it should be the other way around. That we grow, as we grow in years, we grow in love for God. We grow in love for others. And that growth in love manifests itself by growing in patience and growing in generosity and growing in forgiveness and growing in eagerness to share the good news of the gospel. Verse 3. Same goes for older women. Now, ladies... I'm going to leave it up to you if you decide to be in that category or not. I am not going to set an arbitrary age here. In fact, I'm told that there are seven stages in a woman's growth. He said, baby, girl, young miss, young woman, young woman, young woman, young woman. (laughs) Amen. I think we know that Just as men can be inclined to physical abuse, women can be inclined to verbal abuse. Both are destructive. They really are. They have no room among those who are pursuing godliness. And what the Apostle Paul means here by malicious gossip, listen carefully, repeating of information that is not certain. That's what he meant here. You say, why is that so bad? Listen carefully. Because... It ruins reputations. It maligns character. It causes untold pain and suffering. It even destroys lives. And James said the tongue is like a spark that can literally burn a forest. And that is why you must be very careful in giving or receiving information. I always tell folks, I said, what's wrong with Matthew 18? I know In practicing Matthew 18, sometimes you incur some misunderstandings, but that's worth it. It is worth it because you are obedient to the Word of God. Don't go and talk about your brother. Go and talk to your brother. And if you have ever been a victim of gossip or false innuendos, you understand the pain associated with it. In fact, as I said, the person who receives the gossip is just as guilty as the person who spreads the gossip. And then Paul said, that godliness is incompatible with drunkenness. Why? Because you cannot be under the control of the Holy Spirit when you are under the control of a chemical substance of any kind. Verses 4 and 5. What then are these older, wiser women to do with that wisdom? They are to pass it on to the younger women. Tell them to love their husbands, children, be self-controlled, pure, and to be kind and uplifting to their husbands. Why? Here is Paul's passion. This is the very heart and the core of everything he's saying, the whole reason for pursuing godliness. Verse 5, lest the word of God be maligned. That's really his passion here, disrepute upon the word of God. Then Paul goes on to speak 
to younger women and younger men too. Verses 5 to 8. I really think this is the time for me to explain the statement I made earlier, and I said perhaps there is no more time when these biblical injunctions are unpopular than this day. In fact, they're not only unpopular, they are rejected altogether by many in the church. Please hear me right. The worldly influence on young Christians is undeniable. The worldly attack on the Christian foundation of marriage is relentless. The war on biblical marriage is hotter than the blazers. The viciousness by which our culture attacks God's designed roles for husbands and wives is constant. It's everywhere you turn. So what some churches and church leaders have done? They decided that these scriptural passages, these biblical injunctions, that speak of husband and wife's roles, different role, of a husband's servant leadership and a wife's biblical submission, a loving submission, a first century stuff, and that they are irrelevant for our culture, that they are non-binding today. This God-ordained institution of marriage and family as the primary foundation for a healthy society, they are archaic and unnecessary. Here are some biblical truths before I get to the Scripture. Neither chauvinism nor feminism are biblical. These are satanic inventions to destroy God's plan for marriage. They are intended to produce division in society between men and women. But these satanic attacks on this God-ordained principle are not new to our society. Did you know that? They're not a 20th century invention. And that is why Satan began doing what he's doing now in the Garden of Eden. (laughs) From that time on, Satan has been trying to destroy God's plan for marriage for mankind. Listen to me. The two distinct roles of godly, servant, spiritual headship on the part of the husband and a biblical submission on the part of the wife are ordained in creation. They're not made up by the Apostle Paul, as some liberals are saying. They're planned by God in creation. And what God ordained this formula of marriage, it's a very delicately balanced formula. Very delicately balanced. What is it? For the husband to exercise a loving, selfless, caring servant leadership. And for the wife to uphold and honor and uplift him. As I said, it is like a a delicately balanced chemical formula. You see, if you mess around with one compound of that chemical formula, the whole thing goes out of whack. When there is unfaithfulness, abuse, and selfishness on the part of the husband, the formula goes out of whack. When the husband does not place his wife's needs ahead of his own, that chemical balance goes out of whack. When the wife is trying to compete with her husband, beating him down and stripping him of his dignity, the formula goes out of whack. 
You see, with the fall in the Garden of Eden came the distortion of men and women's proper roles as God intended them. There at the Garden of Eden is where the battle of the sexes began. Not a modern-day thing. It began in the Garden because only one person behind all this, and that's Satan. The disastrous consequences of that rejection of God's ordained role for men and women in marriage persisted all the way to the New Testament. And when you come to the New Testament, when God the Son left the glories of heaven and came to earth, born of a virgin, lived as the poorest of the poor, hung on that cross and died, rose again, the New Testament is basically saying, men, 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 you see how Christ loved His people, and He loved them so much that He gave up everything, including life itself on the cross. Now, you do that to your wives and for your wives. On the New Testament, it says to wives… You see how the church of Jesus Christ, the elect of God, the believers, so joyfully, willingly, thoughtfully, and thankfully submit to Christ in worship and in adoration, in thanksgiving, you do that to your husband. Let me just say in passing, the secular media loves to take these injunctions out of their context, out of this gingerly balanced chemical formula, and they twist them in order to make the Christian faith look terrible. They say, ah, see, the Bible teaches that women are subservient to men. Read my lips. No, and a million no. Never anywhere in the Scripture says women are to be subservient or men are superior in any way. The Bible is very clear. We are equal of value to God, and we ought to be of equal value to one another. You see, both Adam and Eve were created in God's own image. And pray, tell me, how can God want one person of His creation who created in His own image to be superior to the other? That is not an issue of value of creation. Men and women stand at a level footing under the cross. But they are to fulfill different roles. They are to complement one another. No one superior, no one inferior. Ah, but the media love to distort the truth of the Scripture. They love it. And here in Titus, Paul is speaking to the older men and the older women saying, model God's ideal to the younger husbands and wives. Then, He says to the younger men and women, follow God's formula regardless of who does and who doesn't. Why should a husband exercise selfless, self-giving, servant leadership? Why should a wife be uplifting to her husband, her loving husband, her caring husband? Verse 5 again, so that no one will malign the Word of God. Do you know what's going on here? I am convinced what the world is desperate to see is for this formula to work as God intended it to be. 
because the world will truly see a fulfilled, happy, joyous Christian family. In the pursuit of godliness, we cannot think of ourselves. We have to think of the one whom we represent. It is not our reputation, but the reputation of God whom we worship. Finally, in verses 9 to 10, Paul speaks to the employer-employee relationship. Don't let that thing about slave-master throw you off, because this is not the kind of slavery that we are familiar with in more recent history. This was an employer-employee relationship, because in Rome at that time, there were 20 million slaves, or what they refer to as slaves, 20 million. They were professionals of all kinds. They were doctors. They were engineers. They were teachers. They were professional of all types. The best thing I can think about is be like our, our guest worker program. That's more like it. But this is about workplace conduct on the part of the Christian. And Paul gives us five ways in which we can exhibit godliness in the workplace. First, he said, work diligently and obey the rules. Secondly, work enthusiastically to please the boss. Thirdly, work quietly to be respectful of your superior. Fourthly, he said, work faithfully and give more than what you take in. Finally, he said, work as to prove your trustworthiness. Let me tell you, you behave like this at work, and you have an open sesame for witnessing for Jesus Christ. This is the greatest open door for witnessing. Unfortunately, many Christians by their lives neutralize the very words they speak. Let me conclude by going back to St. Anthony. He realized that he could not pursue godliness by shutting people out of his life. Whether it be in the desert, monastery, he couldn't do it. So he ultimately discovered and then finally said, listen to what my translation of it. He says, we live and die with our neighbors. If I sin against our brother, we have sin against Christ. If we gain our brother, we please God. Thanks for joining Dr. Michael Yusuf for practical words about life, relationships, and work on today's Leading the Way. By the way, all of Dr. Yusuf's messages are available at ltw.org. Look near the top, click on the Listen link. You can also use the Leading the Way app on your favorite mobile devices or search where you listen to your favorite podcasts. Now, you may only know the teaching and ministry of Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Yusuf through the audio messages or seeing us on TV. But the fact is, Leading the Way reaches worldwide. And one of the fastest growing means of ministry is a popular podcast focusing on the tough issues and getting answers to the hard questions in life. It's called Candid Conversations with Jonathan Yusuf. Jonathan, who serves as Director of Intergenerational Ministries in his local church and son to Dr. Michael Yusuf, hosts this energetic podcast, tackling tough questions through the lens of biblical truth. Find direct links to listen and subscribe at ltw.org slash candid. Or you can always search for Candid Conversations with Jonathan Yusuf within your favorite podcast platform. Once again, ltw.org slash candid. 
This program is furnished by Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Yusuf, passionately proclaiming uncompromising truth around the world. for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.